Hi, everybody. Welcome to the June 17th, 2016 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on the Denver Sheriff's Department announcing a new use of force policy that emphasizes several steps before implementing force, including using, quote, verbal judo with inmates. Patty Cahoon from Westward, uh, you're one of the smartest people I know. I know. What on earth is verbal judo? It's what we show off every week at this table. I actually have no idea, and I started Googling it because I love the idea that you're just going to take people down with your words. But as we've also shown at this table, it's not all that easy. Uh, it, this was a long wait for this. I've just started reading through it. It looks fairly reasonable. The six pages on dealing with animals is a little odd, considering we're talking about the jails where there are not a lot of animals. But... The real question will be, how is it implemented? You're going to need a lot more than verbal judo to make sure everyone follows it. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. What do you think of the new rules announced in the Denver Sheriff's Department? Well, judo is, is a martial art where you use a person's momentum to take them down. So they're coming at you, and rather than pushing back, you actually sort of move with them and, and direct their movement so that maybe they, you, they end up falling to the ground while they were coming at you. So verbal judo, for example, would be like somebody insults you and then you go, I know you are, but what am I? <laughs> that that's sounds like an excellent strategy. Yeah. <laughs> Even though I don't th think verbal judo is the right term, I think, I think Sheriff Patrick Furman, who I've had the chance to meet and talk with a little bit, mm. is a real corrections expert and a, a solid leader. And although that term wasn't the best uh, to use, I, I think his leadership is really important and is very likely going to be constructive. So I, I think his, his new program will succeed, um, and we should give him a, a, a chance. Penn Tate joins us, attorney with QTAC Rock, also a long-time state lawmaker. Um, so beyond the uh, use-your-words policy, do you see anything else here that is a good first step? I think use-your-words po policy is the entire step, first, second, third, and, 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 and last, um, which is not to say it's a bad thing uh, because the, the proof is going to be in the implementation and whether the sheriff's officers actually decide to comply with and follow it. Um, this is something that individual officers could have done for years but chose not to, and it's because, as, as we've talked about many times at this table, there's a culture that exists in the sheriff's department. The question is going to be whether announcing this new policy is going to change the culture of the sheriff's department, that is, if they get buy-in from the rank-and-file officers to use their words instead of their nightclubs, their mace, their tasers, or, you know, sitting on someone until they choke to death. We'll see. Ed C. Levers here from the Denver Business Journal. What do you think of the reception of the announced rules? Well, I, I think the whole verbal judo thing is window dressing. I think that's a nice way of putting it out there and, and trying to tell the public we're going to use less force. The most important thing in the policy is the provision that if you use force, you must explain what you did to try to not use force and why you decided to use this in the end. That's actual accountability. That is making people think about their actions, justify their actions, and if they cannot justify their actions, then you can take a steps against them. Um, you know, look, let's be honest. Force is actually sometimes needed in dealing with inmates. Uh, but uh, the fact is, you know, this whole idea that we're going to talk them off the ledge, that's one thing. But making officers think about why they're doing things and justify them, that's a whole other way to change uh, behavior. 
The shooting at an Orlando LGBTQ nightclub on Saturday has renewed discussions about issues that Coloradans sadly find all too familiar. Gun control, how to respond to American-born terrorism, and even mental health issues are among the topics that have dominated the national discussions since last weekend. Later tonight, Channel 12 will, be, will proudly broadcast a legacy documentary from our uh, archives, Inner Journeys Public Stands. It's at 9 p.m. It's all about the battle over Amendment 2 here over 20 years ago. Patty, um, this, uh, another tragic event brings up so many different issues. Uh, one of the Colorado connections, at least to the response, Senator Michael Bennett was part of uh, a Democratic filibuster about uh, gun issues um, that may go somewhere. But um, of the different Colorado connections, what are some of the headlines that struck you most? Well, the real, one of the crazy Colorado connections, what are the odds that his ex-wife, the shooter's ex-wife, is living in Boulder and who gave us an, eye, an, an entry into just how sick this mind was, whether what pushed him over the end, but he had been beating her seven, you know, six years ago, seven years ago, so we know this guy had serious problems involving a lot of different things. We don't know how much of it was inspired by outside terrorism, how much was hatred of gays, how much was hatred of women. He clearly was a problem. But when you look at the Colorado connections, you think about some of the lessons we learned from Columbine, and one of them was SWAT teams don't wait to go in. That is the biggest lesson of Columbine, because while you have people being held hostage, you have people who are bleeding to death on the floor. That's what happened to Dave Sanders, the teacher at Columbine. And by what we've heard from some accounts here, that's definitely what happened to some of the victims, of the 49 victims in this shooting. So that's one of the lessons we don't, there's so much to unpack here. We don't know if he was motivated by terrorism, external terrorism, by hatred of gays. We don't know if it would have made a difference if they'd broken in earlier. We don't know if the guns made a difference, why the FBI looked at him and then decided not to look at him. So we will find out a lot more as things go on, but we have to remember that homegrown terrorism is as big a danger to us here. You look at the Aurora Theater shootings, you look at Columbine, that's not ISIS. David, if we, it seems two of the major issues coming out of it, at least responded from politicians, are uh, both in the terrorism level of what to do about folks, whether they're homegrown or not, inspired um, terrorist acts. And if there's any wiggle room on uh, gun control debate issues, if it's not, not just the, the, the far edges, I think, of that conversation, but the ones in the middle that there, there could be some compromise. From what you take of both of those sides, what were your thoughts? Well, I, I think this is a time when we hope for leadership from our political leaders, and we haven't been getting it this week. Donald Trump's first reaction was a tweet congratulating himself, and he spent the rest of the week in his usual uh, my mental miasma of self-contradictory rants. He's failed the presidential leadership test. He's a choker, a lightweight, and a loser. Mrs. William Clinton came out and announced that, well, if you're under suspicion by the FBI, you shouldn't have access to weapons. And maybe we can all at least agree on this point, that if you're under criminal investigation by the FBI for violating the Espionage Act, then you shouldn't have nuclear weapons. President Obama uh, and the White House came out with their usual script about how he's an excellent counterterrorism fighter, which is true in the sense that Rain Man is an, is an excellent driver. And then he pivoted to the issue that really energizes him, which is wagging his finger at the, at the American people and lecturing them that, that they better uh, stop being so Islamophobic. 
Michael Bennett, our senator, knows how to be a serious person, but didn't decide to do that this week. He joined the Bloomberg filibuster in favor of a new gun control law, which the FBI director says would harm counterterrorism and which is so egregiously violative of due process that it's opposed by the American Civil Liberties Union and by Mother Jones Magazine, both of which don't think that people even have Second Amendment rights. We're in a situation where the leadership is not leading, it's failing, people are on their own, we have to be our own first responders. And so the most constructive thing that's been done this week is firearms instructors around the country are volunteering to provide free gun safety training classes to LGBT persons, and lots of them are taking up that offer. Uh, Penn, I've been accused of being a Pollyanna when it comes to politics for a long, long time. In my Pollyanna little mind, uh, it seems like there would be some wiggle room in the middle and maybe even some deal-making possibility when it comes to uh, whether it's strengthening some movements on terrorist activities and some compromise on some particular gun issues. I'm not talking about wholesale assault weapon bans, but there's, there seems to be some wiggle room. Uh, are you joining the chorus that I'm just being completely Pollyanna about this? No, I don't think you're being completely Pollyanna. I think your timing's off, though. Uh, I, I think the real problem with this, well, there are a number of problems with this situation, one of which we don't know an, uh, enough about what's going on to really determine how to respond. Patty raises the wife. I mean, the earliest news report I saw this morning was the gunman's texting his wife or ex-wife while he's in the theater, the, the, the club, killing people, and she's texting him back, I love you. Something weird is going on, that she was with him when he cased the joint before he decided to go there. Something strange is happening, um, that all of a sudden he starts referencing um, you know, these terroristic sites and everything where no one had seen this behavior years before in the past. And remember, this is not uh, d despite Donald Trump's um, desires to the contrary, this is not an immigrant. This is a guy who was born in Queens. So he's, you know, he's not an imported terrorist. He's homegrown. I don't know if he's nuts. I don't know if he's a terrorist. We don't know enough about what's happening. Um, but clearly some sort of reaction to and dealing with guns and weapons is going to, to be involved in this. You know, we've said it before. I'll say it again. The Second Amendment is not an absolute, and I think we have to be mindful of the context in which it was written. These guys had black powder-loaded muzzle uh, pistols is what they were dealing with. They weren't dealing with semi-automatic weapons with M16s that were designed for warfare, and now we're seeing them on the streets of this country. Uh, that's going to be part of the solution. That's going to be part of the conversation. Ed, do you think this, uh, the issues from this uh, tragedy become a bigger part of the Colorado election cycle this year? I don't know that it becomes a huge part of the Colorado election cycle. I think people are going to have more of a national conversation about this, and if not just because of this uh, one incident, but because of the, the mounting number of incidents. Um, but, I mean, so far we've been talking about uh, terrorism. We've been talking about uh, homophobia. Whatever this guy's motivations were, I think we can all agree he was mentally ill. And this is the part of the conversation nobody is getting to at this point. I mean, 
Why can we not strengthen our mental health laws to A, get people more treatment, and B, to get people off the streets if they show any signs of this? I mean, I think that's an argument that we've had going back to the James Holmes case, where by all rights, his psychiatrist should have pulled him out of society with some of the things he was saying. Maybe this guy wasn't showing quite the same signs, but he was on an FBI watch list for his terrorist activities. There's another case, if it's not just mental health, take proactive activity. If you are watching somebody because you're worried about their terrorist leanings, don't sit back, watch them, and let them go. Jump in sooner. You know, Find a reason to get these people out the streets. Uh, I don't know. I, I think at this point we need to have a more active uh, presence in, 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 in getting threats out of our, our public sphere. And if we're not, I'll tell you what we're going to see. Ridiculous things. I don't know if you noticed this little blurb, but the parents of the lone American killed in the Paris massacre yesterday filed a lawsuit against Twitter, Facebook, and Google, saying that if these three things did not exist, the Paris massacre would not have happened. People are looking for any kind of answers and anyone to point the finger at now when we should be offering help to people, and if they're not willing to show symptoms that they can take help, to get them out of society. Late last Friday, just as soon as the Colorado Winsettow panel predicted he would veto it, Governor John Hickluber signed the liquor sales for grocery stores bill. The governor said that it is not a perfect solution, but he prefers it to the proposed ballot initiative. Meanwhile, supporters of the ballot issue have yet to officially halt their campaign. Uh, David, do you think Governor Hickluper took his cue directly after maybe watching our live uh, feed every Friday at 12.15 and said, well, if, if they think they're going to go that way, he finally made his decision? Maybe it was a 50-50 thing. And he said, well, at least if I can taunt CIO, that, that kind of, that's the tiebreaker. That's verbal, too. <laughs> exactly. Um, he said that the large majority of independent liquor store owners he talked to were in favor of that. Now, since he's in that business, uh, Previously, my, my guess would be he actually was well informed about, about what they thought. And um, based on that, I, I think it makes sense because, as opposed to the ballot initiative, which would just wipe out these stores very quickly, the, the thing he signed is more gradual. It's actually phased in over 20 years. And it says when these, the, the grocery stores, the large out of state corporations, uh, want to get a liquor license for their grocery store, they have to. Uh, buy a liquor license, buy out an existing store. So that'll at least help the independent stores with transitions. You know, there's some people who say that, oh, well, you know, with free markets, you should just like let all the independent stores get wiped out. But I would agree with Supreme Court Justice Rufus Peckham around the turn of the 20th century, who was one of the Supreme Court's great defenders of freedom of contract and economic liberty. And he said in, in an antitrust case that there's a big difference between a guy who is his own boss running his own small business and, and having that, that independence uh, versus a system where that guy just gets taken over by some giant corporation and becomes a cog in the machine. You know, it's the same reason why American values are better fostered by people being able to, to responsibly own their own homes rather than just be permanently renting uh, an apartment from somebody else. So I, I think Governor Hickenlooper did, probably did the right thing under the circumstances. Penn, I think the governor would hope that the ballot issue would go away, but so far we haven't seen any sign that it will. Do you think it will ultimately go away? 
Well, first, I think the governor heard from, from secret sources that we had all opined that he would veto the bill <laughs> and then decided he would sign it just to make a point. And so his <laughs> point is well made. Um, you know, I'm hearing things uh, uh, differently. What I'm hearing is that the governor signing the bill was the culmination of a deal that's been cut um, with the grocery stores where they're going to basically abandon um, their um, ballot access issue and let this bill be the final word. Now, having said that, that's what I heard, um, it's interesting that I've seen some news reports that indicate to the contrary, that there are some folks out there still considering a push to the ballot, and that would be an interesting play because I think the way this works is if they do go forward and something stays on the ballot and gets approved, to the extent it's inconsistent with the law the governor signed, the referred measure that was voted on by the people would prevail and control what the law of, of the state uh, would be, which would accelerate um, liquor stores being able to sell full-strength beer and, and wine and other spirits. So we'll see what happens. It's going to be interesting to watch. One thing that no one brought out in the debate that I was always curious about is why, what's the issue or why is Colorado so different from other states where grocery stores sell the full array of full-strength beer, wine, and other liquor, but there are also still independent liquor stores in those communities? I've never understood why Colorado is so unique that that would not work here. Ed, uh, we go to you as an expert on a lot of these issues. A, you're a guy at the Capitol. Uh, B, you have written many, uh, now multiple books on uh, the beer business. So uh, I'm just going to give you the floor. What do you think of the signing and where we're going from here? Well, let me take up a couple of things that uh, Penn said. Uh, first of all, why is Colorado law so different? I think one of the reasons the governor signed this, and so many people got behind this, even people who are normally just complete free market people, um, is the idea not that they want more regulations on the market, but the fact that for 80 plus years now since the end of prohibition liquor store owners have operated under these conditions they have invested their life savings into opening up their small stores and most of the 1650 stores in the state are small liquor stores they're not Applejack and Argonaut um, believing they would not have to go head to head with the grocery stores and in fact in many cases opening up right next to them so the idea that you're protecting them isn't so much a protectionism clause the governor reason. It's the fact that we're just telling them, we promised you this is the environment you'd operate under. We're going we're gonna to gradually phase it out, but we're not going to knock you all out of business in one fell swoop as if the ballot initiative passed. Now, I'm hearing different things on the ballot initiative, and if they go forward with this, um, I understand what it would do is it would remove these caps on how many uh, grocery store licenses you could see out there, but I'm told that the 1,500 foot clause in the bill. That's you have to buy out the licenses if everyone within 1,500 feet of you stays in law. Because the ballot initiative, when filed, did not contemplate that. And that is now a part of law that it would have to deal with. In fact, Pat Stedman, uh, the uh, Denver Democrat and lawyer who wrote this compromise bill, was very sure that that one's going to hold up. Um, so much so, Your Choice Colorado, the, the campaign uh, for Safeway and King Supers to get the full array of licenses, continues to mention the threat of legal action, though nobody from their side or any other side can quite say what the legal action would be um, that the legislature actually legislated. In fact, this is about the only thing that the legislature legislated this year. Um, 
But uh, but I think in the end, the governor went through a process, and he really talked like he was going to veto this a couple of weeks ago, went through the process of hearing people, understanding this is a negotiated surrender on the part of the liquor store, saying this is not what we want, but it's better than the alternative, and agreeing to that. Patty, wrap it up for us. Well, and I think ultimately they saw if not this year at the ballot box, some year it was going to be passed because people do just like the convenience and they're not going to go back and read what happened after Prohibition. I would like to have a moment of silence, however, at this table. No matter what happens, I think we are about to see the end of 3-2 beer, which was, in, which was uh, before pro, uh, the repeal of Prohibition in December of, of 1933, People were allowed to sell 3-2 beer in Colorado, and on the day in April when that was allowed, I think they sold half a million bottles of beer to thirsty people. But now we will not. Either way, if the ballot measure goes through, and I think it probably won't at this point. I love that 1,500 feet thing, which I hadn't heard. Um, or if we go with the... With the uh, with Stedman's thing, we will see the end of 3-2 beer by the time that is all initiated. Let's get a quick take on this last one. The Denver City Council passed a significant sewer and water tax hike this week to pay for a new stormwater drainage plan. Opponents of the plan charge that a great deal of the new expenses come from designs needed to accommodate an I-70 construction project. Payne, your quick take, is the I-70 construction project a done deal? Um, I think there, there are many in CDOT in the city who consider it a done deal. The problem is there are too many residents that don't. And I think opposition is building to the plan, particularly when you get measures like this approved by the city council where you have to raise taxes to pay for a storm drainage plan that no one was ever told on the front end was going to be part of the, the, the project or part of the cost for the I-70 project. And do you foresee some uh, more Denverites getting a little more angry about this now that details are coming out? I mean, I certainly, I think when you're talking about $115 more over the next five years that you're going to be uh, uh, paying for stormwater fees, yeah, I think Denverites will get angrier, but uh, there, there's kind of that uh, uh, mixed thing. Now you've, you've enacted these increased fees. If you don't go ahead with the I-70 project, which is always meant to be a public-private partnership, and this is kind of the public part of that partnership, then you've just raised stormwater fees uh, for no reason. Petty, uh, you're a Denverite. Happy about paying more stormwater fees? Uh, not the way this has been done, and I think we're going to see many more people get upset about this because this is not the only increase people are looking at in Denver. And the drumbeat over I-70 and this, this current plan is getting louder, and I think we might see something from the EPA soon on that, too. David, is uh, losing City Park to this project an example of uh, the needs of the many outweighing the T's of the few? It's, this is such a, <laughs> such a bad proposal that Kevin Flynn, our former panelist, now Denver City Councilman, who, whose heart swoons whenever you mention huge government spending projects for infrastructure, he <laughs> voted against it because it, it, it's so badly thought out. Former Democratic Colorado Attorney General J.D. McFarlane is filing a lawsuit against it because it violates the Denver City Charter, which says you can't take park land, like the city park golf course, out of park uses without a vote of the people. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. And if you'd like to share your Disgrace of the Week or say something nice on the air, tweet us or post us on our, post on our Facebook page. But as always, Patty, please start us off. Well, even as we're filming this today, there's a protest outside the Denver Post. Ten years ago, the Denver Post newsroom had 330 people. Uh, it's about to go from 130 down to 100 because they're, they've got buy-offs. If the people don't take the buy-offs, there might be layoffs. 
the union is out protesting the current owner Alden who's making money by all accounts they're making money they're just not making enough money but this town deserves a much more robust newspaper we're losing some great people like Suzanne Brown who's been in the business for three decades so it's a disgrace what's going on at the post David the University of Colorado uh, Northern Colorado administration with its poster campaign about words you're not supposed to say on campus so I'm just gonna let people hear those words because you can't say them at UNC our excellent camera crew has people on it who are skinny. Penfield, I think you've lost a little weight. The Orlando terrorist was not an illegal alien. All lives matter, regardless of sexual orientation, because free speech matters. You guys at the University of Northern Colorado administration are wasting the money of poor college students and taxpayers. <laughs> Pen. I echo Patty's sentiments about the, the Denver Post, um, but I also am, am drawn to, to David's comment earlier about Donald Trump just failing the presidential basic competency test. In his comments in the wake of the shooting in Orlando, I get more and more despondent about even having him as the, the nominee to the Republican Party. This is just awful. It's, I, I, as a country, we can do better than this. Ed? The El Paso County Sheriff's Office, right after the Post comes out with this great story about how the Texas Rangers have found a link in a conspiracy in the murder of former Department of Corrections Chief Tom Clements, says this week, with almost no comment, that they're done investigating that. There's no conspiracy. Uh, something that took all of 24 hours for John Hickenlooper to come back and say, no, we're not done investigating this. If it's not one thing, it's the other in the El Paso County Sheriff's Office, which seems to be operating without a compass right now. See something nice about somebody? Time for that rather quickly. Patty. Speaking of Compass, people should head down to Civic Center Park this weekend where the 40th, oh, I think it's at least 40, Pride Fest, the annual celebration of the gay and lesbian and queer and all of them communities, but basically a celebration of diversity and freedom in Colorado goes on. David. The United States men's soccer team, which has advanced to the semifinals in the Copa America. You're here. The civic spirit of Denver. We've got the annual Juneteenth celebration on Welton Street here, uh, where we are this weekend. We've got Pride Fest in Civic Center Park, and we've got Comic Con at the Convention Center. Father's Day fun for everybody. There you go. Ed. Toshi and Yazoo Kazaki, the owners of Sushi Den, uh, realized that there was a problem. Their customers were really clogging up the streets around the restaurant. So they decided to build a multi-million dollar garage without asking the city or the neighborhood to contribute to it. That's civic responsibility. Nicely done. That is all the time we have tonight. Thanks for tuning in. As always, please be sure to check out our podcast on iTunes and for our CIO Postgame segment on Twitter and Facebook. And, of course, please stay tuned at 9 o'clock. We're airing Inner Journeys Public Stands, a legacy program from our archives. We're very proud to have been standing with the LGBTQ community for over 36 years at the station. Uh, sadly, we have this kind of reminder of that kind of legacy, but I think you'll enjoy the documentary from our archives. For everyone here at Channel 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for watching. Good night. Mm -hmm.